I'd invite you to turn with me this morning to Matthew 25, beginning at verse 31. Matthew 25, beginning at verse 31. I know some of you are back finally with us after a while. It's good to see so many good faces. Others might uh, be visiting with us. Just an update on kind of what we've been doing this, during this uh, Lenten season. Our focus has been on what was on Jesus' mind as he went to the cross. And what did he <clears throat> most want to communicate with his disciples, with us? And one of the ways that we can understand what's on Jesus' mind is to listen to what he says during that time, between Palm Sunday and Good Friday. And we find that Matthew records a number of different parables that Jesus tells. Now, these parables kind of cover uh, Jesus' first coming and gives us a little perspective on that. And then they talk a little bit about uh, waiting for his second coming. The first two parables we looked at used familiar images for, for the people of Israel. They used a vineyard and tenant farmers. A vineyard was always a picture of Israel in the Old Testament. <clears throat> so we know that had to do with Israel and, and how the leaders were taking care of Israel or failing to take care of Israel. As God had often con condemned them through the prophets, and now Jesus is saying there's really nothing new. God has kept sending prophets, but now in these last days he sent his son. And that was the picture of the, the tenant farmers rejecting the son that the owner sent, rejecting, God, rejecting Jesus and actually uh, planning to put him to death was the first parable we looked at. Jesus is kind of giving us a big picture perspective. God, this was in God's plan. God kept sending prophets, but now he sends his son. This is how they reacted. And then the next parable was about a banquet, a banquet, a wedding feast for the son of the king, the prince. And it was, in essence, an invitation for the people to accept the prince by coming to his wedding banquet, and people were turning him down. Again, another perspective. And Jesus saying, some of the religious leaders have turned me down. They don't want me as their king. But then there were other people. The, the, the servants went to the highways and byways to bring anyone in, and we see that in Jesus' ministry too. He was bringing in the outcasts, the the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the sinners, and others were entering the kingdom of God before some of the religious leaders, Jesus himself says to them, and depicts that in that parable. So these are, but again, the reaction was to reject him and, and seek to kill him. Then Jesus has some conversations, part one of which was that he talks a little bit about the signs of the times. What's going to happen between his first coming and his second coming? Wars and rumors of wars, people turning on each other, all of this stuff are signs of the times that were happening already in the disciples' day, continue to happen today, and will continue until Jesus comes again. It's kind of a cyclical thing. You see that in the book of Revelation. And so Jesus is giving them this picture of the signs of the times, but then at the end he says, but when I come you'll know it, but you don't know when. He says, no one knows the day or the hour. Not even the Son, but only the Father. Therefore, keep watch. Wait and keep watch. And then he launches into three more parables in Matthew 25. 
The first is, has that very same theme. Keep watch, for you do not know the day or the hour. It was the parable of the ten bridesmaids. Be watchful, because the bridegroom is going to be delayed. And then, he tells a second parable that adds an element to it. It's not just about waiting and watching while you're waiting for my return. It's also about working. And so he tells the parable of the talents or the, the bags of gold that were entrusted to servants and, and we are to invest in the kingdom. Jesus says, I don't want you just sitting there twiddling your thumbs, waiting and watching. I want you to work for me. I want you to make an investment in my kingdom. Now this last parable that we're going to look at is, in essence, the kind of work Jesus expects us to do. But not just the kind of work, he also brings us to that final judgment, that day when he is going to judge all peoples. And so we know this as the sheep and goat judgment. Let's read it in Matthew 25, beginning at verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people, one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, Truly, I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the evil or into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? He will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Would you join me in prayer? Holy Spirit, as you inspired these words to be recorded by Matthew, we ask that you now inspire these words to us to help each one of us know the kind of action that we are to take as a response to what Jesus calls us to do and to be. We pray it in his name. Amen. Now, I don't think we can help it, but as we read this parable of Jesus, we almost naturally reflect on our own actions. We look at this parable of the sheep and goat and their actions, and, and naturally we look in the mirror and say, is that true of me? So as you reflect on your own actions, and I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, how many 
would say they're 100% sheep? How many of you would say you're 100% goat? How many would say you're kind of a mixture? Did you know that genetic researchers produced a half sheep, half goat? They called a geep. And the picture on your screen is a picture of one of those. A geep. Now, they're very rare in nature. They tend to, because of their genetic structure and the mix, it doesn't often work, and so they, most often they die before they're ever born. They're very rare in nature, geeps are, but I think they're not at all rare in our world, spiritually, morally. I think most everyone in the world is a geep. So this passage, <clears throat> this parable is a little bit troubling for us geeps. It seems so clear-cut, so black and white. Sheep and goats coexist in a flock as they do in Israel, and they're separated when night comes, and night being a picture of eternal judgment. So when we truthfully evaluate our actions, I would say it's hard for us to say with confidence that we are purebred sheep, that we're going to be on the proper side of this judgment. You see, there's always a trace of doubt when judgment is cast in terms of works. A number of years ago, a movie came out called Defending Your Life. In it, people were awaiting the final judgment and they were supposed to prepare a case for why they should get into heaven. Now, if the judgment happens the way Jesus illustrates it here, I'm afraid I'm going to cause a little trouble. Not that I want to, it's just that I don't fit neatly into either category. If the judge says, make your case, I'd answer, well, sometimes I fed the hungry. On some days I clothed the naked. I often visited hospitals and occasionally a prison. And he might say, oh, that's mighty sheepish of you. But, but Lord, wait, that's, that's not all I'd have to admit. There are other days, you know. Days I stuffed myself while others starved. Nights I kept warm under an electric blanket while others of your children slept over steam grates on the city streets. And the judge might say, hmm, that is a problem. What shall I do with you? You see, I'm not 100% sheep. I'm not full-blooded goat either. I'm a, I'm a geep, fit for neither the right or left hand of God. Thornton Wilder in, weaved an intriguing story in his uh, novel, The Bridge of San Luis Rey. In it, Brother Juniper was a man who strongly believed that God rewarded the good and punished the evil, but he could never prove it. Then one day, the bridge collapsed and five people were killed. And, and from that point on, for six years, Brother Juniper spent time collecting evidence on their lives. He wanted to prove that the, the evil are punished and the good rewarded. Do you know what he found? All of them were geeps. All of them were mixtures of saints and sinners. What about us? And you know, the problem's not just with external action. The problem's also with my inner self. Sometimes I have an angry self capable of meanness beyond my admitting. 
My pulse races at a bone-crushing tackle or a well-landed punch. At other times, I see my loving self, capable of compassion and patience that surprises even me. Inside the same skin, I can be uncaring and different and indifferent, ready to ignore the world as long as me and my own are taken care of. But right next to that wretch is an involved self, a righteously indignant and bold when a child is harmed or a minority maligned. You could say, I guess, that I'm a hodgepodge of holy and unholy motives, a jigsaw puzzle of selfish and unselfish needs. The late Irma Bombeck knew the feeling. In her old newspaper column, she once wrote about one of those days. She was hurrying to pack for a plane trip while her son told her in boring detail about the movie he had watched the night before, punctuated by 3,000 you knows, you know. There were three phone calls from long-winded well-wishers who didn't get the message when she hinted that she was running late and just out the door to catch a plane. On top of that, a taxi, the taxi cab driver rambled on about his world without end, brilliant son in college. At last, she checked her baggage at the counter, confirmed her ticket, and sat down in the waiting area of the airport. And that's when it happened. One more interruption. I'll let her describe it. There were 30 whole beautiful minutes before my plane took off. Time for me to be alone with my thoughts, open a book, and let my mind wander. A voice next to me belonging to an elderly woman said, I'll bet it's cold in Chicago. Stone-faced, I replied, it's likely. I haven't been to Chicago in nearly three years, she persisted. My son lives there. That's nice, I said, my eyes intent on my book. My husband's body's on this plane. We've been married 53 years. She writes, I don't think I've ever detested myself more than I did at that moment. Another human being was screaming to be heard and in desperation had turned to a cold stranger who was more interested in a novel than the real-life drama at her elbow. She needed no advice, money, assistance, expertise, or compassion. All she needed was someone to listen She talked numbly and steadily until we boarded the plane, then found her seat in another section. As I hung up my coat, I heard her say to her seat companion, I'll bet it's cold in Chicago. I prayed, God, let him listen. Maybe we could tell some stories like that too. Stories from our lives that are all about regrets. Things we could have done or shouldn't have done. Because deep inside, I I think we know that we're probably more often goats in our life than sheep. What's the Lord going to do on Judgment Day when he separates the sheep from the goats? What about geeps? Will it be the slaughterhouse or green pastures? Our problem is that we often divorce this judgment scene from the rest of the Bible. The Bible's clear teaching is we are saved by grace, not by our actions. We are saved by grace, not by our actions. It will not be about the merits or demerits of of what we've done or failed to do. 
So, what's the parable about? What's its point for us geeps? I believe it's a mixture of encouragement and incentive. First, encouragement. Notice that the sheep, the, the sheep that he places on his right, are surprised. When did we do that? When did we minister to you in that way? And I think so will we be. Because when we think of our actions, I think we often focus on our sins and failures and we tend to forget Christ died for those. They've been slaughtered with him on the cross and and buried in the depths of the earth. They are no more. That's the clear teaching of Scripture. And so on Judgment Day, I, I believe... If we truly believe in Jesus as Savior, and as we sort of wince waiting for the axe to drop, I think the judge will say something like, hmm, in my book it says you're a purebred sheep. What a fine pedigree too. Good stock from the stock of the Lamb of God. Welcome to the eternally green pastures. And if I'm honest, I, I might reply, well, what about all my goat-like actions? No, they're not in the book. Some others around might say, hey, we know Ed Visser. He's no purebred sheep. What about the time? Not in the book. And I'll be one surprised geep. I mean, sheep. But there's also incentive. What's the incentive? The incentive is that we are servants of our good shepherd. I don't think that's the main theme here. Some people make that the main theme of the parable, but I think it's an important secondary one. We who struggle with mixed motives, with goat-like actions, who find it hard to love unlovable people, how do we do it? How do you love unlovable people? Jesus gives us one simple incentive. When you look at them, see me. When you look at them, see me. When you look at your fellow church members, when you work at your, look at your classmates, your colleagues at work, your neighbors, Jesus says, see me. See me in them. And for us sheep, surprised by grace, that should be incentive enough. Now, don't get me wrong, while we are a mix of sheep and goats, we are also called to be more and more like Jesus, the Lamb of God. We are to progress, and so we also need to ask ourselves, how might we take a step this week toward being more like sheep, more like Jesus? But we must always remember that we are judged not by works, but by grace. So we do it all, all of these sheep-like actions, not to earn a place in God's kingdom, but we do it out of gratitude for His grace, for already giving us a place based not on our actions, but based on Jesus' sacrifice. That place is already assured. 
Jesus is already preparing it for us. In fact, for us geeks, oops, I, I mean sheep, the final judgment will really only be a formality. Think about it. Think about a graduation ceremony. By rights, seniors having passed their classes are already graduates. But they become graduates in fact when they receive their diploma at graduation. On Good Friday and Easter Sunday, we became purebred sheep by right through the obedience of Jesus Christ and his blood shed on the cross. The final judgment will simply make it a fact and we'll enter the eternally green pastures with our good shepherd. Is that the judgment day that you look forward to? The contemporary testimony of the Christian Reformed Church called Our World Belongs to God addresses the day of judgment this way, and I want to close with these words. On that day, we will see our Savior face to face, sacrificed lamb and triumphant king, just and gracious. He will set all things right, judge evil, and condemn the wicked. We face that day without fear, for the judge is our Savior, whose shed blood declares us righteous. We live confidently, anticipating his coming, offering him our daily lives, our, our acts of kindness, our loyalty, and our love, knowing that he will weave even our sins and sorrows into his sovereign purpose. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for giving your life for us. We thank you that you are the pure, spotless Lamb of God, the ultimate, final sacrifice, a sacrifice that does not need to be replicated, a sacrifice that we claim not by any virtue of our own, but because you have chosen us and you have loved us. And yet, Lord, we want to live for you. And so out of response, help us to live more like the sheep in this parable than the goats, knowing that our sins have already been hidden with Christ on the cross and in the tomb, never to rise again even as Jesus was raised. And that affords us a new, new life. We thank you for your gift of the Holy Spirit who helps us as we seek to grow more and more like our Good Shepherd. Help us in this week to cooperate with the Spirit, to keep in step with the Spirit so that we might live because of your love for us, we live eternally, but that we might now live out of your love in loving relationships and in loving actions and motives toward others. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to sing together What Wondrous Love, and we're going to sing the first two verses, and then after the benediction, use the last two verses as our doxology. Would you stand as we sing together?